Well, yesterday, if you were here uh, for the first part of my talk on replacement theology, and most of you were, I'm sure, um, remember we define replacement theology as simply the belief that God has replaced Israel in his plan with the church. Therefore, Israel has no future plan. There is no need for a tribulation or uh, for a millennium. This morning, I want to pick up where we kind of left off. Uh, yesterday, I was giving you a lot of the background, what some of the early church fathers had began to say it took about 250, 200 years for this really to take hold in the church. It was certainly not the belief of the early church fathers, uh, the apostles in the first and second generation. In fact, they were uh, Chileus, millennialists. They believed in a future literal millennial kingdom. We know that from some of their writings that, that we uh, have today, uh, that the early church fathers believed that. But within about two centuries of the church, that belief kind of faded away because it really didn't fit in with the belief of replacement theology, and replacement theology began to take over in acceptance in the church. But up until the fourth century, replacement theology, while it was the belief of many in the church, the church was still an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. It had no opportunity for which to uh, do anything other than speak against the Jewish people. And that all changed in 313 A.D., and it, it, it all points back to a man by the name of Constantine. Constantine was a young man. His father had raised up an army. And in the Roman Empire, if you wanted to be emperor, what you did was you raised up an army, and you went around and you defeated the other Roman armies and consolidated power until you had enough control of the Roman Empire you could declare yourself emperor. And that's exactly what Constantine's father was intent to do when he died suddenly. And here's Constantine, a story in some ways similar to Alexander the Great, a young man whose father dies suddenly, leaves him with an army. And uh, he is poised to go into battle. It's the Battle of the Milvan Bridge. And uh, just prior to going into battle, he prays to the Christian God. Because when you're going into battle, you're always looking for the advantage. And you're always praying to a God and asking the God's favor to give you victory. The thing about it was that uh, Constantine... Uh, was a tremendous underdog in this battle. The, the uh, general he was fighting was an older, very experienced general. He had a bigger, better army. They were better equipped, better trained. And so the odds of him winning this battle were very slim. But he prays to the Christian God, and before going into battle, he changes the emblems on the banners to use Christian symbols. And he gets this incredible victory. He defeats the, ar the other army, and uh, within just a few months, he's able to consolidate power and move into a position of being emperor. This is a real turning point in the church history. And I think it's one of, unfortunately, the darker days in church history. Because Constantine, after getting control and authority, passes a law to make Christianity a legal religion. For the first time, it was legal within the Roman Empire to be a Christian and to practice Christianity. And in doing so, he brought all of the church under the authority of the Roman Empire. Uh, priests or pastors were put upon the payroll of the Roman Empire. It, the, the period of time just prior to this was one of the worst periods of, of persecution for the church. And so it initially appeared to be a great day for the church because the persecution came to an end. But I say it's a bad day or a black day in the church because the church suddenly became a part of the state. And because all of the, the pastors and priests went on the payroll of, of the government, the, 
Constantine took control of the church. Within uh, just eight more years, Christianity goes from being a legal religion to the official religion. Now, if you wanted to be a part of the official religion of Rome, you had to be a Christian. And that brings all kinds of people into the church, not because they're putting their faith in Jesus Christ, but because they want to be part of the religion. And just 60 years later, Christianity has now made the exclusive religion of the Roman Empire. Now, one of the interesting results of this is that over not that long a period of time, the, head ch- the, uh, the church in Rome comes to be the head church, right? Because it's where the seat of power is. And in fact, one of the things Constantine does is he splits the Roman Empire into two halves, the western half and the eastern half. Right? And the western half is where it's uh, headquartered by Rome. The church in Rome is the most powerful church, and the bishop of Rome becomes the most powerful church leader of the western half of the Roman Empire. That bishop eventually rises up in his Rome position over years to become the pope. And this is how we come to receive the, or the Catholic Church comes into to, uh, existence, really, if you will, the, the Roman Catholic Church, right? He eventually becomes so powerful that he becomes more powerful than the emperor. Because once Christianity becomes the exclusive religion of the Roman Empire, if you want to be emperor, you need the blessing of the church. Right? And this is what happened across Europe. As the Catholic Church spread in its influence and in control, it becomes more powerful than even the governments of Europe. Now, once the church gets authority, it's not only legal, but it has got the authority of the government behind it, things begin to change in replacement theology in that they now have opportunity to do something against the Jewish people. And it begins with legislation. The number of laws that begin to get passed outlawing synagogues, uh, giving permission to burn Jews who were guilty of breaking the law, right? Um, Jews were excluded from holding high office. They, they restricted Jews in positions that they could hold or military positions. Uh, they decreed that all Jewish businesses had to be closed on Sunday. Now, Jews who were religious had to be closed on Saturday. Now they had to be closed the second day of the week, Sunday. Whereas the Gentile merchants only had to be closed one day, Sunday. So that's a real disadvantage. They're forbidden to live in Jerusalem. And Sunday's declared to be the Sabbath day of rest, changing the declaration of Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. They forbid the observance of Easter at the same time that the Jews celebrated. And, you know, that's incredible when you think about it, because when did Christ die? Died at Passover. It's part of the picture of what salvation was all about. And yet, because of this dislike for the Jewish people, they wanted to disassociate the church from anything Jewish. And so uh, they came up with a different way, and that's why some years our Easter happens to fall right at Passover, but most years it falls at a different time. And that's the reason why. They made it unlawful to feast together with Jews. And uh, the legal rights of Jews are greatly restricted. Right? You see all these actions against the Jewish people. They're forbidden to, forbidden to bring legal accusations against Gentiles. And uh, the Christian parents are forbidden to give their children marriage to Jewish people. Right? All these restrictions. And then... Another turning point is 415 A.D. because this is the first recorded event we have where anti-Semitism went from being something verbal to something physical. And in 415 A.D., Cyril of Alexandria, who was the head of the church in Alexandria, he led Christians in really a riot against the Jewish quarter of Alexandria in which they, they uh, 
beat up people, they raped women, they murdered men, they took their property and drove Jewish people out of the city of Alexandria. Just a very, very terrible day in Jewish history. That led from that point on to uh, just uncount, we can't count the number of events that occurred uh, in anti-Semitism against the Jewish people. Uh, you remember the Crusades, come along around 1,100, right? Um, there were two popes who were competing to become the pope of the Church of Rome at that time. And one of them decides that if he could come up with a cause around which to rally people, he could seize power and become the exclusive pope. And so uh, he calls for a crusade. It wasn't a new idea, but he was the first pope to really be able to organize this and make it happen. And as the Christian armies were marching across Europe, as they would come into villages, Jewish villages and that, uh, they would take property, they would murder the Jewish people, rape the women, uh, just leave the cities burning. It was just a very, very terrible day. Um, there were libels, lies told against the Jewish people. And so much of this happens in Europe, right? Because that's where most of the Jewish people had settled. And um, whenever there was, for example, a plague that would break out, it was very common to, to tell stories that the Jewish people had uh, poisoned the water or were responsible for those plagues and all the death. I mean, it didn't matter that the same proportion of Jewish people were dying as Gentile people. Uh, they still got blamed. There was a light, has been told many times over, that Jewish people will steal ch uh, Christian children and they'll drain the blood from them and use that blood in making matzah for their holidays. And you can imagine the outrage. There never was one instance where that was ever proven. In fact, the law forbid the use of blood uh, in, in cons consuming blood. But those kind of lies were told all the time in Europe. Uh, it, Jewish people in Europe become the scapegoat for things that go bad in Europe, Eco economic troubles, uh, political troubles. Uh, they're caught in between political uh, wars all the time. There's beatings, thefts, murders. Uh, they're accused of Christ, being Christ killers. Very common event in Europe is uh, passion plays in the spring. And time after time, people would come out of the passion plays worked up and incensed that the Jewish people were responsible for the death of Christ. Right? Contrary somewhat to scriptures when Christ said, nobody takes my life unless I lay it down. And the fact that it wasn't a Jewish hand that nailed him to the cross, but a Gentile hand, right? I mean, we're, if you understand scripture, we're all guilty of putting Christ on that cross. And yet, and the fact that you would want to blame the Jewish people today for that, who had no part in that, right? But that's what happened. Um, inquisitions, all kinds of things happening. And then along comes Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther is a man that I have to tell you that we are all greatly indebted to. Uh, we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Martin Luther and the other reformers who took a stand against the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, what he did was, to me, was incredible to be able to take the stand he did against the authority of the church because the church had exclusive authority. The only thing that uh, saved Martin Luther's life when uh, he took the stand against the Catholic Church, they came after him. They wanted to arrest him, take him back to Rome, and he would have been imprisoned and nobody would have ever remembered who Martin Luther was. But the princes of Germany who were tired of the tyranny of the Catholic Church took a stand and protected Martin Luther. And it's because of that that the Reformation movement, I really believe, got its foothold and took off. Martin Luther, when he left the Catholic Church 
and began, and began the movement that becomes the, the uh, Lutheran Church, really had a lot of good, favorable, friendly relations in the Jewish community. And he had this belief that the Jewish people had rejected Christianity because when you looked at the Catholic Church, it was so corrupt and vile. Why would they ever embrace anything like that? Because indeed, in Martin Luther's day, the Catholic Church had become very vile and corrupt. And so he believed that if they ever got to see true Christianity based on faith alone, that they would see that so favorably that they would embrace it themselves, but they didn't. And as he grew older, he began to take a negative view of the Jewish community and Jewish people. In his later years in life, he wrote a couple books. One's called The Jews and Their Lies, and the other, The Ineffable Name. And he used very strong anti-Jewish language. In fact, in those writings, he encouraged the people to burn their synagogues, right? destroy their homes, take their wealth, and put them to hard labor. Now think about this. Just a few hundred years later, when Adolf Hitler comes along, and he is writing Mein Kampf, which is his justification for what he wanted to do and building his case for what he wanted to do in Europe, right? When he's looking for a spiritual argument to use in making his case against the Jewish people and the annihilation of the Jewish people, he turns to Martin Luther, the favorite son of Germany. And if you think about it, Hitler followed this to the T. He just added one more thing that Luther didn't, and that was murder. Right? Interesting. Historically, the church has had three answers to the, uh, uh, to the problem of the Jewish people. The first answer that they always tried, you know, there's this picture of the wandering Jew that we have, and it's based on historical reality, okay? Because as Jewish people would settle in places in, in Europe, the typical pattern was this. When they first settled, they'd be accepted, They'd be shown kindness. They'd be allowed to live in the area. But as time went on, eventually the Christians felt it was their obligation to convert the Jews to be Christians. And so they would try to force them into conversions. You know, it would be an offer like this. Would you like to become a Christian today or would you like to die? And many Jewish people chose death. When evangelization, and by the way, converting to Christianity wasn't putting your faith in Jesus Christ, it's being baptized and taken into membership of the church, right? When evangelization didn't work, then they would turn to expulsion. In other words, moving the Jewish people out, and that's where the picture of the wandering Jew. Throughout history, Jewish people tell you that history tells them one thing, that whenever they settle near Christians... They may have a period of prosperity and peace that could last decades, but sooner or later the, the Christians will rise up against them, blame them for things, persecute them, and chase them out. Do you know there were periods of time where some countries in Europe forbid Jews to live within their borders? Spain does that. England does that. And when expulsion didn't work, then there's elimination killing of the Jews. The reason there's so many Jewish people that end up in Eastern Europe is they got driven that way by persecution. And then Hitler comes along with his final solution, and his final solution was to say the elimination is not only an answer, it is the answer to the Jewish problem, right? And you say, why would you have that in a slide that talks about the church? Because if you're Jewish, you believe the Holocaust 
was carried out by Christians. And you can say Hitler wasn't a Christian, but all, all those soldiers that worked for him, many of which were good Lutheran or Catholic boys, they're the ones that were the guards that carried out the activity in the concentration camps. And the good Christians in Germany, most of them did not stand up against what was going on. All right. So, we see that uh, replacement theology has a, an effect on the church. It changed the attitude of contempt toward ethnic Israel and led to an exclusion of Israel as a subject of theological reflection. In other words, the church no longer saw the scriptures as a Jewish book and wanted nothing to do with the Jewish people. So they see the church only in Gentile terms, right? Church theologians ignored the uniqueness of the Jewish nation amongst all the nations of the world. And today, if you hear somebody who holds to a replacement theology, you'll commonly hear them say something like, Israel's no different than any other nation. They should have no favor or no position above any other nation or next to any other nation. The church ignores important New Testament teachings. The church came to ignore the priesthood of the believers, believing that man still needed a human intercessor, right? Which, which seems contrary to, to Hebrews and other teachings in the New Testament. They ignored the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and believed that, the, that he had to continually be sacrificed and the, the necessity of faith for personal salvation. Now, the reformers got this straightened out. Right? When, they, when they took their position against the Catholic Church, Luther and uh, the other reformers straightened a lot of this theology out. But when the reformers came out of the Catholic Church, they brought with them replacement theology. And they built their whole concept of eschatology, the, the doctrine of future things, and even their ecclesiology, how they did church, was all based upon replacement theology. If you were to go into those churches today and try to remove replacement theology, their whole system of eschatology collapses. Because if God hasn't replaced Israel, as we believe, right, then there is a need for a tribulation in the millennial kingdom. All those passages of Scripture that deal with that have to be handled. And so suddenly you don't have a justification for, the, for, the millennial, or for being all millennial or post-millennial. The church comes to believe that it was the fulfillment of the messianic kingdom because of replacement theology. And also the Christian violence against the Jewish people becomes more common and widespread because of replacement theology. These are all impacts of replacement theology upon the church. Now, replacement theology is still in the church today. Many of you know that. You've encountered it. Some of you have told me uh, since I spoke yesterday morning that you're just surprised how far back it goes and how ingrained it is in the church. But we encounter it today in our ministry, and we have people calling us from time to time asking for uh, help on how to respond to this. I want to deal with just some of the issues that we see in replacement theology today for the next couple minutes. The first one is the existence of national Israel today is very problematic to the replacement theology people. Their existence supports our view of dispensationalism. The existence of modern Israel today fits in exactly with our understanding of God's plan for history. That God has a different plan for Israel than he does for the Gentiles. Okay? And that's bothersome to them. And then when a, a series like Left Behind comes out, they get very frustrated because people in their church are buying it and reading it. 
And then they go to church and they say to their pastor, what do you think about this Left Behind series? And of course, they think it has no credibility. And so they respond negatively. But look what God said. He said, I will take you to the Jewish people from amongst the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your land. The existence of modern Israel today is not problematic for us. It fits right in with what God said he was going to do. He said, surely I will take you the children of Israel from amongst the nations, wherever they have gone, and they will gather them from every side and bring them into their land. God is doing exactly what he said today. Amen? And we are privileged to live in a time where we can see that reality of what God is doing. Secondly, Israel is seen as a major cause for problems in the Middle East. I want to share with you some comments from a man that has been greatly used by the Lord. His name is John Piper. I have tremendous respect for him. He's a great teacher of the Word of God. But he's the pastor of Bethlehem Bible Church, or Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, which is a Reformed Baptist Church. Reformed, covenant, those kind of churches that hold that kind of doctrine typically hold to replacement theology. And I just want to show you how replacement theology works its way out in what is said and preached from the pulpit. Back in March of 2004, he was speaking on events in the Middle East. And I have to tell you that I have tremendous respect for what John Piper had to say in that he said there is no place ever for violence against the Jewish people or any other group of people. So he made it very clear to his people he has no place for anti-Semitism. But in this same sermon, he goes on to say the existence of Israel in the Middle East and the extent of the borders and her sovereignty are perhaps the most uh, explosive factors in world terrorism and the most volatile factors in Arab-Western relations. In other words, he's saying the fact that Israel exists today is the major cause for the, for the terrorism that we see in the world today. And, you know, just to have a balanced look on things, where is the blame laid for Islam, right? If you wanted to be balanced, you'd at least work Islam into that statement. Right. He went on to say this, and again, this is just replacement theology and how it works out in, in those that hold to it. The promises made to Abraham, including the promise of the land, Right? will be inherited as an everlasting gift by true spiritual Israel, not disobedient, unbelieving Israel. So you get what he's saying? The promise of the land of Israel doesn't belong to the Jewish people anymore. It belongs to the church. That's what he's saying. That's who he means when he refers to true spiritual Israel. He's referring to the church. There's also a confusion of who the church is and who Israel is. And We've talked about in replacement theology, they believe the church is Israel. They have to take that position to be able to argue that the promises God made to Israel don't really belong to Israel, right? Because it's very clear that God has made those promises to Israel. R.C. Sproul, another man that God has used to bless many, uh, a great Bible teacher, but he believes in replacement theology, and he says this, we believe that the church is essentially Israel. We believe the answer to what about the Jews is, here we are, Right? That's replacement theology. That's the belief that the church is Israel. And then uh, Knox Theological Seminary, James Kennedy's uh, seminary that, that is uh, housed in, that he began there in his church, um, they got very worked up because of the Left Behind series and some of the comments being made some, by certain evangelicals back in 2002. So they posted this open letter to evangelicals. 
Uh, and they were asking evangelicals to sign it. And there are evangelicals today who do hold to replacement theology. Not all are dispensational, okay? And, uh, and so they had in this letter this statement, bad Christian theology is today attributing to secular Israel a divine mandate to conquer and hold Palestine. The entitlement of any one ethnic or religious group, okay, that's a reference to Israel, to territory in the Middle East called the Holy Land, that's the land of Israel, cannot be supported by Scripture. That's replacement theology talking right there. And then Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, if you've ever heard him on the radio, and he's very good. He's, he's got a tremendous mind for Scripture uh, and the ability to memorize and remember where everything's at. But he holds to replacement theology. He's aggressively attacked Tim LaHaye and calling him um, uh, a racist and a blasphemer in the book that he recently released. Now, I was at a meeting last December where he was debating with a pastor uh, the, between dispensationalism and uh, preterism, which is what he holds to. And, um, and this issue came up. He did back off that comment and said he probably went too far in making those claims against Tim LaHaye, but it was out of frustration over some things Tim had said, right? Uh, but Hank Hanegraaff has, has been on a campaign against us and those that think like we do for quite a while because he believes the church is Israel. Then there's this concern we hear about that dispensationalists have an excess of influence in U.S. political leaders in favor of Israel. That we somehow have this extra access or this special access to the president and the State Department and so forth, and we coerce them into supporting Israel when they otherwise wouldn't do it. That's what's behind it. There's a website called ChristianZionism.org. Now, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the term Christian Zionism or the term Zionism, but if you believe Israel has a right to live in the promised land and that they have a right to exist as a nation there to be a sovereign government, then you're a Zionist. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a Christian Zionist. This website, ChristianZionism.org, is not for Christian Zionism, it's against it. It's very deceptive. So it's it's really an anti-Christian Zionist website. And on their website, they make this statement that they're disturbed by the growing influence of Christian Zionism on the political scene in America. Because typically, those in a replacement camp tend to side with the Palestinian Arabs and are against Israel and blame Israel for the troubles in the Middle East. Christian Zionism, this carried on to the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America back in 2005, they passed this proclamation that Christian Zionism and its biblical end times interpretation seeks to influence U.S. policy toward Israel. What I see in our government, quite honestly, is a very balanced approach, and that kind of bothers me. I wish it was more skewed toward Israel. But look at the millions and millions of dollars we've given to the Arabs, the Palestinians. And what do they do with that money? They turn around, they buy weapons, so we have to give millions of dollars to Israel to, to buy weapons to be able to defend themselves, right? Well... Perhaps the most troubling is what's going on in European churches today. Anti-Semitism is on the rise in Europe today. And uh, the clergy and the lay people alike are openly saying that Israel should never have been founded at all. And here's their rationale. Because the Jewish people refused to believe in Christ, they should be punished by having their country taken away from them. Isn't that incredible? That's what's going on in in churches in in Europe today. Now, I want to be very fair, as fair as I can about this. 
It is not anti-Semitic to believe that the church has replaced Israel or that Israel has no biblical promise to the land. That belief in and of itself is not anti-Semitic. But it is anti-Semitic to use scripture to justify outright contempt for the Jewish people and to repudiate Israel's right to sovereignty. And it has historically been difficult to hold to the beliefs of replacement theology and and avoid anti-Semitism for the church. Now, I'm not saying this morning that anybody who attends a church that believes in replacement theology or holds to that belief themselves is anti-Semitic. But what we do see and observe today is that those churches and denominations that hold to replacement theology are the ones that some of the leadership and some of the people in the church are rising up against Israel and taking these stands and calling for divestment and action against Israel. And that has been the pattern of history. What does God have to say about all this? Well, first of all, in Jeremiah 31, the Lord says, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. You know what God's saying here in Jeremiah? If the sun, moon, and stars go out of existence, Israel will go out of existence. But not before. If you stop and think about it, if the sun, moon, and stars goes out of existence, not only does Israel go out of existence, <laughs> so do all the Gentiles, right? Jeremiah also goes on to say that God says, yes, I have loved you, speaking of Israel, with an everlasting love. And if God loves Israel, it's our obligation to do so as well. Amen. He also says that anytime someone strikes Israel, they're striking his cherished ones. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. The passage in Ezekiel 36 I think is very significant because it really gets to the heart of the matter between those in the replacement theology camp and those of us in the dispensational camp. I'd like you to open, if you would, to Ezekiel 36. I just want to show you what God has to say about why he has chosen Israel and why he has yet to do a glorious work through Israel. Ezekiel 36 God begins in Ezekiel 36, in this section here that really begins with verse 16, explaining to Israel why he has judged Israel and why he is scattering Israel, because they've profaned his name. They've gone after other gods. They've not worshipped him the way he instructed them to worship him. And so he says, so therefore I scattered you amongst the nations, right? Verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned amongst the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned amongst the nations wherever you went. Oftentimes when I talk to people that believe in replacement theology, they say, it just makes no sense why God would restore Israel. If you read Ezekiel 36, it makes perfect sense. He is not doing it for Israel's sake. He's doing it for his name's sake, for his glory. 
And really, that is one of the significant things that differentiates what we believe as dispensationalists from what those in the replacement theology can't believe, who hold to covenant theology or reformed theology. Because in reformed theology, the, the general belief about what the ultimate purpose of history is, is the salvation of man. And for dispensationalists, we believe the ultimate purpose of history is the glorification of God. Now you may say, isn't the salvation of man a process by which God gets glory? Yes, it is. But I want you to stop and think about it. When you say the ultimate purpose of history is the glorification or the salvation of man, who's the subject there? Man. And when you say the ultimate purpose of history is the glorification of God, who's the subject there? God. And they're completely different. What Ezekiel supports is the glorification of God. What he is going to do, and he goes on in this passage to describe how he's going to return them to the land. He's going to sprinkle water on them and wash away their sins and put within them a, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone that he will bring to them salvation and put his spirit within within them, that's salvation. That is something yet to happen to the nation of Israel. And God is doing it for his glory and not for Israel's sake. And then there's Romans chapter 11. God says in Romans chapter 11, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So do not be haughty, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he might not spare you either. What Paul is describing here is how salvation comes to the Gentiles and the fact that God has grafted in the unnatural branches, which is you and I, if we're Gentiles, into the covenant promises that he gave to Abraham and his descendants, right? But he says, he has a warning there, do not mistreat the broken natural branches, the Jewish people. Because the same God who withheld his grace from the Jews can do the same to the Gentiles. And you know, to me, this is a very key point. Because the God of the scriptures that I read about is a God who keeps covenant. Right? Turn with me to uh, Psalms chapter 105. You know those statements we read earlier that said there's no basis in Scripture, right, for any ethnic group, any people to claim ownership of the land? Verse 7 of Psalm 105 says this, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenants forever. How long does God remember his covenants? That's a long time. And he goes on to say, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, a forever covenant, saying to you I will give the land of Canaan as an allotment of your inheritance. That covenant that he made with Abraham and promised through Isaac and Jacob and their descendants that that land would be theirs forever He told them if they did not do what he commanded them to do, their right to live in the land would be in jeopardy, but the ownership would never be taken away. 
The reason I could never believe in replacement theology is as simple as this. If I believe in replacement theology, then I have to change what the Bible says. And I have to believe a God who made unconditional, everlasting, irrevocable promises changed his mind. And if he could do that for Israel and the covenants he made to Israel, he can do it for me and my salvation. I do not believe that is the God of the Bible. And because of that, I can never hold to replacement theology. I've spent the last two sessions with you talking about replacement theology because I think it's important for you to understand the legacy, the history of replacement theology in the church, in particular because if you have a desire and if you are working at uh, building relationships with Jewish people in the Jewish community, you need to understand replacement theology and the impact it's had uh, in the church, and in particular, the Jewish people who have lived with a 2,000-year legacy of anti-Semitism in the name of Christ. You need to understand this because this is what they know. They may not be able to, you probably have a better understanding right now of what replacement theology is than they'll ever have. All they know is that for the last 2,000 years, they've been persecuted by Christians wherever they lived. There's only one country they've lived in where that's not been true. That's the United States of America. There's been little outbreaks of anti-Semitism, certainly personal experiences, but not on a major scale. And a Jewish person will tell you, historically, wherever we've lived, sooner or later the Christians have risen up against us. Now, you have the opportunity to show them there are Christians who love them. And that's what they need to know. They are beginning to understand that there are more than one kind of Christian. And that there are Christians today who do not believe God's done with the Jewish people. I hope you'll use this discussion to encourage you to get involved with Jewish people. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. And Lord, this talk has not been about trying to accuse people, but rather of just opening our eyes to the legacy that is a part of the church. And in the Jewish community, it is the biggest obstacle that we have to building relationships, getting to know, and having the opportunity to share with them what we believe about Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.